0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary PSL. Here's our care pastor, Andrew, with the message, A Love Without Limits. Good morning, Calvary PSL. How are we doing? Guys, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Great energy in this room. My goodness. So turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. I'm gonna be starting in verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And as you are turning there, can I just say, Happy New Year. (laughs) Guys, we did it. We got through 2020. Is that amazing or what? Can we just praise God for how good he has been? (laughs) He has been so good in the midst of it all. God has still been on the throne, and he has still been so good. And as we go into 2021, he will continue to be good and continue to be on the throne. Now, how many of you here have New Year's resolutions? How many? Wow, not many. We were just happy to get through 2020, weren't we? Forget about resolutions. So, you know, resolutions, are, they're, they're not too bad, right? They can be a good thing, you know, some good goals. But here's what I wonder sometimes. I, I think sometimes we can treat our faith like a New Year's resolution. Here, here's what I mean by that. I think sometimes we, we think, hey, if I just do some tweaking to my faith, If I just do some moral maintenance, some spiritual push-ups, maybe I can earn my way closer to God. And this question of how do we come to know God and how do we come to grow with God is so important. Do we do it by our own grit and determination like a New Year's resolution? Or do we do it by Him and him alone? How do I know God and how do I grow with God? And the answer to this question is so important. It affects everything. It affects your relationship with God and it affects your relationship with others. It affects the kind of parent that you are, the kind of spouse you are, the kind of boss, the kind of employee. The answer to this question is so important important how do we know god how do we grow With God. And that brings us to our overarching point of our time together. We are in desperate need of a Savior and we can't save ourselves. The way we know God and the way we grow with God is through Him, not by gritting and bearing it and doing our moral maintenance and tweaking and spiritual push ups and climbing the ladder. We know God and we grow with God because you know what? It's all His doing we are in desperate need of a savior and we can't save ourselves so if you're there with me in luke chapter 10 sorry verse 25 say i'm there awesome let me pray as we continue this time together lord thank you so much for this time you are so good You are so great. We thank you that you indeed are on the throne. You were in 2020 and you will continue to be in 2021. Thank you, God. And so as we continue this time of worship, Lord, would you speak? Would you move? God, when your word is open, Lord, you are here. God, and so we give this time to you. Lord, help us to walk away one degree closer to you, one degree more in love with you, one degree more like Jesus. We give this time to you. We thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. We give this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, a little background on this parable. See, the Good Samaritan is one of the most well-known and one of the most misunderstood of Jesus's parables. In church history, we've been very confused about our interpretation of this parable. There's this guy named Origen who is an awesome Christian theologian and scholar in the second and third century AD. Awesome, awesome guy, but he's a little bit off with his, his interpretation of the Good Samaritan. He had some weird things to say like that Jerusalem represented Adam, and the Levite and the priest represented the law and the prophets and all these weird symbolisms, and it's just not there. And he did this thing called eisegesis, right, where we read into the text. We take our own thoughts and ideas, what we want it to be, and we try to fit it in. And we know, church, that we're all about exegesis. We're all about the verse-by-verse life application teaching of God's word, pulling it out. Now, most people don't, follow origins' way of interpreting this passage, but something more common today that we do is a social gospel interpretation of this passage. And it goes something like this. Be a good person. Just be good. Do the right stuff. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Be better. Do better. And you know what? One day, when you stand before God, as long as that scale, the good outweighs the bad, you got it made. Be a good person. But as we actually look into the context of this passage, we come to find out that this couldn't be any further from the truth. When we look at the context of the passage, we come back to our main point today, and that is that we are desperate and in need of a savior, and we can't save ourselves when we look at the context to help us in our journey through this passage, we got four signposts today that I wanna walk you through. The four signposts in our journey go like this. We've got the setup, verses 25 through 29. We've got the story, verses 30 through 35. We've got the summary, verses 36 through 37. And we've got the so what, the application, so what? What does this mean to me? isn't just head knowledge it's got to sink into our heart and into our feet as we walk out of here so what and when we look in the greater context of Luke's incredible gospel we see beginning of Luke the first couple chapters we have the infancy narrative of Jesus we just we celebrated christmas how awesome Luke 1 and 2 Jesus coming in to the world Luke 3 and 4 God's preparation where he gets baptized and then he gets tempted in the wilderness, and then as we continue through Luke, we see he spends time up in Galilee, his Galilean ministry, does this incredible job doing miracles and incredible teachings up in Galilee. And that leads us to Luke chapter nine when everything changes on a dime. And it says in Luke chapter nine, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. You see, Jesus was on his own death march to Jerusalem to die on the cross for your sins and mine, and to raise from the grave victoriously, and to sit at the right hand of the Father. And so when we come to Luke chapter 10, this is our context. And we look at our context, we find that this is anything but a do better, be better story so much more than that. We are desperate and in need of a Savior, and we can't save ourselves. So look at me with Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 goes like this. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I, what's that next word, church, do to inherit eternal life. What shall I do? How do I earn my way? How do I climb the ladder? I can know God, I can grow with God by gritting it and bearing it. What do I do to climb the ladder? Now, the lawyer, he was somebody who knew his law well. He knew Genesis through Deuteronomy well. He knew his Torah and he knew his Tanakh. He knew the Old Testament, the prophets well, inside and out, so he is an expert And he stands up in the midst of a teaching context in that time. Jesus would be sitting, the crowd would be sitting, and he stands up. It's actually a respectful way. There's nothing wrong or rude about it. He stands up, but then he opens his mouth, (laughs) and he asks the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Church, answer this for me. Can we do anything to get saved? Is it based on what we do? Now it's based on what Christ did for us. And so he stands up to test Jesus. So we get the, the method and the manner of how he does it is fine, but the motivation, the meat of this question is wrong. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And then verse 26, though, so Jesus, Jesus, he's a genius, right? Verse 26, he answers a question with a question because that first question was off. So he seeks to help reorient the conversation. And so he says in verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? You're the lawyer, you're the expert on this, you, you tell me. And then in verse 27, the lawyer gives, actually the perfect answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So maybe this lawyer had spent some time around Jesus because we see in Matthew's gospel that a different lawyer comes up to Jesus. This is Matthew 22. A lawyer comes up to Jesus and he has a different question though. His question is, what is the greatest commandment? Pretty good question. Jesus' response, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two depend all the law and the prophets. Everything filters through love God and love people. Love your neighbor sacrificially, love God supremely, love God, love people. And guys, as followers of Jesus, how cool is that that our Lord and Savior said everything goes through this? That means if you are in a one-year Bible reading plan and you just started, and and more about that, because I started mine, I'm so excited. But if you're in that, you're, you're in Genesis right now. Guess what? All of it filters through, love God and love people. When you get to Leviticus, love God and love people. On these two hinge, all the law, all the prophets, love God, love people. How cool. But the question is different, right? What is the greatest commandment in Matthew? But our lawyer friend in Luke, chapter 10, doesn't say what's the greatest. He says, how do I get eternal life? And so when the lawyer says, well, you love God and you love people, Jesus's response is still, hey, you, you've answered correctly. Verse 28, do this and you will live. Jesus basically says, good luck. If you do this, you will live. See what happens to you, buddy, but good luck. But the lawyer, his wheels start turning his mind starts reeling. I can just see him. He's, he's about to sit down and he goes, ah, oh, wait. Uh. And then he goes into verse 29 and it says, seeking to, what's that next word? Justify himself. He said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor Sometimes we do this, guys. We justify, we seek to justify ourselves. We try to make a shortcut. We try to fit ourselves into God's righteousness. See, what the lawyer is doing is taking God's righteousness and the standard of his commandment, and he's deflating it. And he's taking his understanding of himself and his goodness and righteousness and inflating it to try to meet that. Bar and that bar is too high. We cannot lower God's standard of righteousness and increase our own. And so the lawyer is seeking to justify himself, to make himself right. He just say, "Hey, how do I fit into this law?" And as we continue to see, it's like a square peg, round hole. It just doesn't fit. You cannot earn your way to God. And so we go from our setup into our story. Verses 30 through 35 are set up into our story. And before we get into this story, we need to talk about the definition of what a parable is. There's there's some misconceptions about what a a parable is, so check this out from gotquestions.org. A parable is literally something cast alongside something else. Jesus' parables were stories that were cast alongside a truth in order to illustrate that truth. His parables were teaching aids and can be thought of as extended analogies or inspired comparisons. A common description of a parable is it is an earthly story with a what church? Heavenly meaning. So Jesus here is trying to give us an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. He's giving us an overarching theme for this time together and the point goes back to We are in desperate need of a savior and we cannot save ourselves. Heavenly meaning, earthly story, heavenly meaning. Unlike our friend Origen who had 27 different things so each description means something else, Jesus through a parable wants to give you a main overarching theme and we see that when we read it in the context. And so now let's get into the meat of this parable. This is an absolutely incredible story. So verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down From Jerusalem to Jericho. When he says down, he literally means going down. It was a significant decrease in elevation. 18-mile journey, significant decrease. You'll see here on our map, Jerusalem highlighted in yellow, Jericho in the blue to just get our bearings straight. Significant decrease. And if you look at the picture of this trail, you'll, you'll see that it's also a very narrow narrow journey full of twists and full of turns um, to get through this path. It was a very dangerous journey uh, to go down and often there were robbers, there were hard things that happened and so when you look at this trail, you'll see that it's pretty narrow. It's not a four lane highway. I think it's important as we go on because we see that some guys walked by and it was pretty hard to walk by, but they did it. and so. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Verse 30, and he fell among robbers and they stripped him, they beat him and they departed, leaving him half dead. Is this a good day for this guy? No. And this might've been part of a story made up by Jesus, but Jesus's audience would be familiar with this. they would be familiar with this path. They may know people have gone through that same thing. And so I love that Jesus gets on his audience's level to make sure that you have the earthly story but with a heavenly meaning. He wants to drive home the truth. So he uses points of reference for them that they would understand. And so he's stripped, he's beaten, he's left for half dead. This is a terrible day for this guy. He is desperate and he is in need of saving. And he definitely can't save himself. But check this out, verse 31. By chance... By chance, a priest happened to be going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So Jesus brings up the, the priest. The priest, he had it made. He was the best of the best. He knew his law well. He knew his Torah. He knew his Tanakh, the law and the prophets. He had it All together. He went to church regularly. He was a part of the Calvary group. He knew his Bible. He was the most likely to stop as he just passed by. Remember our narrow road. It's pretty hard to pass by, but he did it. But Jesus goes on. There's still hope. Verse 32 So likewise, a Levite, when he came to where he was, passed by. On the other side, the Levite was like JV temple team, right? He, he was there, he helped the priest out, he knew his own law, he knew the Pentateuch, he knew the Tanakh, the law and the prophets, he should have stopped and he didn't. The most likely to stop did not. But then in verse 33, ooh, check this out. We see a really important word, but. Contrast Everything changes. You see, in this story by Jesus, Jesus' audience would think, okay, we go from priest and we go to Levi, and the next thing they'd think would be, okay, maybe a Jewish commoner, maybe a Pharisee or Sadducee, maybe a lawyer even, but there's no way that Jesus' audience saw this one coming but a Samaritan. I guarantee you when he said that word, Jaws dropped, people gasped. They went, what is Jesus talking about? You see, Samaritans were hated by the Jewish people, absolutely hated. You see, in 721 BC, the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom of Israel, and they took some of the best of the best out of there into exile. And they left some behind, and the king of Assyria put some of his own people there in the land and put people from other countries there in the land. And so the Assyrians inter or the, the Assyrians intermingled with the Jewish people, and slowly the Jewish people that were left behind started buying into these other gods. And their faith in Yahweh became distilled and watered down. And they ended up following multiple gods instead of just Yahweh alone. And over time they really left Yahweh God, and so we see very different journeys from 721 BC to 30 AD, and in the midst of that, there was bad things that went down between the two of them, terrible incidents and events where they just went tit for tat and escalated violence and hatred, and so by the time we get to 30 AD, when Jesus is sharing this story, there is some really bad blood but a Samaritan, the least likely to be in the story and to be the hero of our story. So, but a Samaritan, verse 33, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had what, church? Compassion, compassion, the Greek word for this, splochnisomai. I love this word. It makes me think about on Christmas morning last week when it was freezing cold and having a delicious bowl of my mother in law's chili, and it just went all the way down inside of me, made me so warm. And splochnisomai means you feel love from the depths of your being. It means to be present in the pain, to minister in the mess, to serve in the suffering, Splognesomai. This is not an obligatory love. This is a you are in it kind of love, compassion. And we see the same word in Luke chapter 15 in the parable of the prodigal son. Many of you are familiar with this. The prodigal son, he leaves his father, basically says, dad, you're dead to me. And he goes away, comes to his senses finally and says, I'm gonna come back, but I'm gonna offer to be you a know, hired hand to my father. Father, make me like one of your servants. So he comes back with a in head and he says, Father, make me like one of your hired servants. But he doesn't get a chance really to get that out because the father, check this out, the son arose, came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. And it goes on to say, he, he threw a feast for him. He put a ring on his hand. He put sandals on him, gave him a robe, and he celebrated. And this was a representation. The reason why Jesus gave us was to show the Father's love for us. Compassion, spognizomai. And this is the same word that we see in Luke chapter 10 to describe the love that the Samaritan had for this half day dead guy on the side of the road, and it is the same kind of love that our Father has for you and for me, compassion. And so check out this list of all that the Samaritan did for us. First of all, he went up to the half-dead guy. He put himself in harm's way. He put himself in danger. Those guys could have still been there waiting to jump him too. So he went up to them, He bound up his wounds, so he likely took maybe uh, something from his tunic, from his cloak, ripped it off, bound up his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. Oil would be helpful to soothe the pain. Wine, a helpful antiseptic. And then he set him on his own animal, maybe a donkey, and uh, that means he had to walk. So he put the half-dead guy on the donkey. He walks the rest of the way. Don't forget, too, we see in verse 33, it said, as he... Journeyed. The Samaritan had things to do. He had people to see. He had places to go. That all went out the window when he saw this guy and had compassion. And he takes him to an inn and says he stays the night with him. Do you think this guy got a full eight hours of sleep at that inn? No. He's taking care of the half dead guy. That is a rough night. And by the way, an inn at that time was no Holiday Inn. It was a rough place to be. And then the next day, he goes to the owner of the place, and he says, here's two denarii. Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back, verse 35. Two denarii, two days wages, and then he goes on to give the owner of the inn a blank check. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And so the Samaritan makes plans to come back to follow through. This is a love that is so deep and is so profound. This is compassion, splog nizo, my compassion. And so we go from the setup to the story to the summary. Look with me in verse 36. Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? So love this question. We start off the whole section of scripture in the beginning with the lawyer saying, how do I I get saved? How do I earn eternal life? And then Jesus says, what do you think? Lawyer says, well, love God, love people. Jesus says, all right, good luck. Lawyer asks, "Uh, I'm not so sure about being able to love my neighbor, though. I wanna make sure I gain eternal life. And he says, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus launches into this and he rephrases the question. The question is no longer who is my neighbor, but how are you being a neighbor? You see, the lawyer had a limited question. Jesus has a limitless answer for him, everybody is your neighbor, including the most hated person you can think of. Everybody is your neighbor. And the last verse, verse 37, he says, the one who showed him mercy. The lawyer can't even say the word Samaritan. The one who showed him mercy, I guess. And Jesus says to him, go and do likewise. But here's the deal. You and I don't do this on our best day. We don't. And if you do, let's put it this way if you were to pass one homeless guy, and maybe you stopped for a thousand before and a thousand after, you have still broken the law of love God and love people and love your neighbor as yourself. But you know who fulfilled this law? The one who fulfilled it, the only one to live up to this law is Jesus. You see, we were that half-dead guy on the side of the road. But instead of being half-dead, we were dead. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We were dead, and instead of a Samaritan coming to save us, we had a Savior coming to save us. Instead of binding up our wounds, pouring out oil and wine, he poured out his blood for us, and by his wounds, we are healed. Instead of putting us on his own animal, instead of putting us on his own animal, taking us to an inn, He took us to be a part of his forever family, part of a forever home. Instead of staying the night with us and paying two denarii and giving us that blank check, he paid the ultimate cost. He paid his life for us so that we could be a part of the body of Christ and we could be his child. Jesus saved us. We were desperate and in need of a savior and we could not save ourselves. Jesus saved us. So we went from the setup, the story, the summary, and now so what? What does this have to do with me and my life? So what? Well, I know you guys, aren't like this, but some people, some people, when they drive down I-95, they might drift a little. And the thing about drifting, when you're not paying attention, drifting can be dangerous. And I submit to you that we are all in one of a few lanes. We're in the lane of God's limitless love, or we can drift into the lanes of either legalism or lawlessness. I wanna talk to you about legalism for a second. GotQuestions.org has this to say about legalism. It's a term Christians use to describe a doctrinal position, emphasizing a system of rules and regulations for achieving both salvation and spiritual growth. Legalism says, I can know God and I can grow with God by gritting it and bearing it like a New Year's resolution. I will climb the ladder and earn my way. Here's the problem With that, guys, as we climb the ladder, we kick other people on our way up the ladder. Our righteousness, like the lawyer seeking to justify ourselves, that is a square peg round hole. We cannot earn our way to God. Look at what Jesus has to say about this. So Luke starts us off, Luke 18, 9, and Luke writes this, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and treated others with contempt. And he goes on to tell this parable of a tax collector and a Pharisee. And he says, the Pharisee goes up, and this is the Andrew Webb paraphrase. God, thank you that I have it all together. Thank you that I go to church every weekend. Thank you that I read my Bible every day. Thank you that I am part of a Calvary group. Thank you that I have it all together. And thank you that I am not like this tax collector. And then Jesus goes on to say, the tax collector stood far off and he beat his breast and he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, you know who went down justified? The tax collector. Guys, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And while we're in this lane of legalism, I, I do want to say something else. There's people who come here every weekend and they carry a backpack. And it's a backpack that nobody else can see. And in that backpack, there's, there's these heavy bricks that are inside of it. And, and they're put there by the enemy, they're put there by Satan. They're lies. And the lies go something like this You've done too much you're not good enough. God will never accept you. And through the gospel of God's limitless love, we start taking out these bricks. And the lie of, you're not good enough, we say, no, but God was good enough for me. And the lie of, you've done too much, we say, Jesus paid it all for me. And the lie of God will never accept you. We say, God accepts me, First John 3, 1, how great the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. God loves you, church. And there are some of us in this room that need to know that. Put the backpack down. Let God take those bricks out for you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. There's nothing too much that you did that he did not carry on the cross for you. You are his child. So we go from the lane of legalism to the lane of lawlessness. In 1 John, John writes that sin is lawlessness. Check out this definition of lawlessness The word translated lawlessness comes from the Greek word anemia, which means an utter disregard for God and his laws. From this Greek word, we also get the word antinomianism, which is a belief that there are no moral laws that God expects Christians to obey. So instead of saying, I'm saved by what I do, we say, hey, I am saved, so it doesn't matter what I do. And yet, just like in the lane of legalism, we see... There is distorted love, there is inauthentic love in the lane of legalism. Well, in the lane of lawlessness, there's no love. But look what Paul has to tell us about this church. Romans chapter six, Paul has three important words that we're gonna get to. So what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What does it say, church? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus and were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Guys, the lane of lawlessness is not one that gives freedom, that's a lie. The lane of lawlessness constricts like a straight jacket and we need the key of God's limitless love to free us and to say, no, I get to walk in newness of life. I died to that old me, I get to live like Christ. And so we go from the lane of legalism, the lane of lawlessness, into the lane of God's limitless love. Check out what we have to see here in 1 John chapter four. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So we see in the lane of God's limitless love that he loved us so much and it changes us and we give that love to others. It's not that we loved God, it's not that we earned it. No, 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 God loved us. Now we get to extend that love to others. How do we know God and how do we grow with God? It is only through this through his gospel, through his love. Do you wanna be a better parent, a better spouse, better boss, better employee? Stay in the lane of his limitless love because, again, we have an insincere love and legalism. We have no love and lawlessness. But in the lane of God's limitless love, we have gospel-centered love. God changed me. How can I not show love? to others. And so what does that mean for you today? Well, maybe you have a friend who is homebound, they're sick, they can't really get out at all. Maybe it looks like you reaching out to them, showing them the love of Jesus. You are impacted by his love, you are showing love. You call them, you write them, you bring them a meal. You are impacted by God's love, you show love. Maybe you're a high school student and maybe there's a new guy that's there at youth group and he's still trying to fit in, he's still new and maybe you go out of your way to get to know him, to introduce yourself to him, to introduce him to others, to bring him in. You have been impacted by God's love and then you show that love to others. You see guys, we might not find a half dead guy on the side of the road when we leave here, but we're gonna find plenty of people who are in need of God's limitless love. So maybe it's after this going to our party in the courtyard, right, and getting to know somebody else, showing them God's limitless love. You have experienced it and now you get to give it. And so, sometimes when we go down the road in our own cars, we realize we need to get an alignment, right? We gotta get our tires in order so they're going the right way. How do we keep in alignment? I got four things for you, church. Time in the word, worship, weekend gatherings, and with others in community. Time in the word, we have to spend time with a compassionate king if we're gonna be compassionate ourselves. We can't do this without him. And so what I have to ask you, church, is this. Do you have a plan for your time with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? If you get nothing else out of this time, please listen to this. You have to spend time with the compassionate king Amen. if you're going to be compassionate yourself. Right. So we are not about the good Samaritans, just a do better, do good story. No, 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 no. We were desperately in need of a savior. He saved us, and now we get to spend time with Him. He pours into us; we pour out. What is your plan? I talked earlier about a one-year Bible plan that I'm starting. I'm so excited about it, and I'm actually doing it through the Calvary PSL app. All you got to do is download Calvary PSL in your app store. You see, there's a Bible reading plan. Absolutely love it. I I was so excited to do it this morning. It was in day three. It was awesome. I would encourage you, join me in that if you don't have a plan. Download it, do it, but do something. If you do not have a plan, do something. Gotta spend time in God's word. His word is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. Spend time in his word. And if you're unsure what that looks like, encourage you, talk to one of us, talk to one of us pastors or talk to our elders, talk to a group leader, uh, but get into his word. Second thing, worship. Gosh, Reagan and his team, they did an amazing job up here today, right? They were incredible, incredible worship team. And so worship, but also throughout the week, How are you worshiping God? How are you praising him through song and through prayer and as a way of life? We're all wired to worship someone or something and God has made us to worship him. How are you doing that throughout the week? And can I just say, these are not works, these aren't things for earning God's righteousness, but rather this is placing us in front of God and in front of God's people so he can continue to shape us and mold us, be impacted by his limitless love. Third, weekend gatherings. Are you coming to church? Are you being a part of the gathering? And of course, we wanna say that for those that can't make it due to this crazy time, due to health concerns, we love you, we miss you, and we fully support you, and we can't wait to see you. But for those of us that just don't go to church out of convenience, guys, we can't forsake the gathering Together is so important. When you come, are you a spectator or are you a participant? Are you a consumer or are you a contributor? Get involved in a serve team. Be a part of what God's doing. Be a part of the Calvary core here. And finally, with others in community. You can see I tried really hard to get the Ws, right? But with others in community, be a part of a Calvary group. We don't just grow in a row, grow in a circle So we'll be talking a lot about Calvary groups over the course of this month and be looking to kick them off the first week of February if you're not in one already. You don't just grow in a row, you grow in a circle. And so in conclusion, here's what I wanna say to us, guys. Can you join me in this New Year's resolution that we are all about the gospel we are obsessed with the gospel? Would we remind ourselves every day of the gospel? May that be our resolution that we were that dead guy on the side of the road that christ came to save us he died on the cross for your sins and mine he rose from the grave we get to experience his limitless love show that love to others let's be obsessed with that gospel church amen Amen. love you guys appreciate you